Uh, well, friends, the story is told of two frogs who fell into a can of cream. The sides of the can were slippery and wet and steep. The cream itself was deep and cold. Uh, given the circumstances, the first frog lost heart and drowned and sunk to the bottom of the can. But the second frog just did not give up. He kept on kicking his legs. He kept on uh, swimming and paddling. And despite the situation, he kept at it for hour after hour until, do you know what happened? Well, the cream turned to butter and he was able to jump out of the can uh, to safety. Well, the subject uh, this morning is Christian endurance. Uh, anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time will know that it's hard going. It's a marathon rather than a sprint, isn't it? And so it calls for a great deal of endurance. It calls for a great deal of perseverance and stickability. Uh, you can see that this is the topic of our passage in Hebrews this morning because uh, if you have your Bibles open there in chapter 12, you can see that the theme comes up again and again. At the end of verse 1, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Verse 7, it is for discipline you have to endure. Verse 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet. Uh, now, the need for endurance in running the Christian race was a pressing need for the uh, uh, people that the letter to the Hebrews is addressed to. For you might re remember, as we've been reminded this morning by Will, they were a people who suffered terribly for their faith. Uh, back in chapter 10, we saw that they had suffered publicly for being Christian people. They were exposed to public humiliation for their faith. They had property plundered because they followed Jesus. However, not only were they persecuted, but it seems as though they've been Christians for a long time, and, well, by this stage they are feeling the fatigue in their Christian lives. And so the writer of Hebrews writes to encourage these Christians to, to keep on going and to endure through the suffering and pain of the Christian life. Uh, some of us may be feeling like this at the moment, if not persecution. Um, there may be some of us who have been Christians for a long time and who are just starting to feel the pinch a little bit, uh, feeling fatigued and tired in the Christian life. And you need this encouragement from God's Word as well. How is it that we can run this Christian race with endurance till the end? Well, the first thing... Uh, that the writer of Hebrews says is that the way to run this race with endurance is to keep looking to Jesus, is to keep looking to Jesus. Now, you might have noticed that the image we are given in the first four verses of this passage is that of an athletic stadium where there is a great race on. Uh, all Christians are called upon to run this race. However, uh, the objective of this race is not to beat uh, other people who are running the race. But the objective of this race is just to finish, for that is where the glory is. 
Now, you can see there that the camera firstly zooms in on the crowds who are in the stands. Uh, in verse 1, they are called the great cloud of witnesses. Um, I think these are the heroes of the faith um, who, from the Old Testament whom we saw uh, a few weeks ago in, in chapter 11. Uh, they are examples of people who lived by faith in the promises of God and endured suffering because they were looking forward to the fulfillment of these promises, even though they didn't see it in, uh, fulfilled in their lifetime. And so there is an encouragement here to look to the lives of those people to endure because they are looking forward to an even greater hope. But then notice that the camera zooms in on the runners themselves. Uh, this is you and me if we are people who trust in Jesus and who are running this Christian race. But did you notice what these uh, people are doing in this passage? Well, they are stripping off everything that will slow them down in the race. For you simply cannot run an endurance race with a heavy coat or a pair of high heels or other heavy items that will slow you down. Uh, think Kathy Freeman in the 2000 Sydney Olympic Games with her full-length bodysuit. I think even her head was covered, wasn't it? You simply cannot imagine her running the race with unnecessary layers of clothing, can you? In other words, friends, this is about the habit of getting rid of things that might distract you and me from following Jesus and running this race well. Uh, the weight that you see there in verse 1 are those things that in and of themselves are not necessarily sinful, but which kind of distract you from running the race. The sin that you see there are those things uh, that you and I know about in our lives that keep tricking us up in the Christian life so that it's hard to keep running. And what does God say we must do with these weights and these sins? Well, you can see there, can't you, that he says that they need to lay these things aside. You and I need to lay these things aside. We need to get rid of them. And we can't expect to run the Christian life if we are not prepared to get rid of these things in our lives, even good things. But here's the thing. Notice that the camera now zooms to Jesus. For the secret to running this race well is to keep our eyes focused on Jesus and to keep looking to him. Uh, midway through verse 1, it says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, in running this race, Jesus is our supreme example. Uh, we've seen many examples in chapter 11, but in keeping with the theme of Hebrews, uh, we are given Jesus as the better example here. But notice that he is the one who knows what it is to endure. He endured the suffering of the cross. He endured the shame and hostility of his own creatures stripping him naked and mocking him and nailing him to a cross. And why did he endure all these things? Well, you can see there in verse 2 
that it's because he was looking forward to the joy of heaven itself. He endured the cross because he was looking forward to the crown that lay ahead. And by rising from the dead and now sitting at God's right hand in heaven, he shows that the way of the cross will most certainly lead to that crown. Now that's why he's described as the founder and perfecter of our faith here, because his faith reached its desired goal of heaven itself. And so he is able to help us and perfect us and our faith so that we will reach that goal as well. Uh, you see, my brothers and sisters, these things that the writer of Hebrews speaks about are all very related, don't you think? That is, if you and I are people who are convinced of the great joy of heaven that lies ahead, then we will be people who are willing in our lives to lay aside things that distract us because our great goal lies in the future. It is a person who lives for heaven who will not live for the things of this world and are willing to travel lightly. Uh, I've noticed that people who run this race well are people who are willing to give up even valuable things in their lives, even good things in their lives, for the sake of the future glory, for the sake of finishing well. There are people here, even in this room, who have given up jobs that demand too much of them so that they can serve Jesus more effectively and run this race well. There are those, even in this room, who have laid aside unnecessary purchases so that they can give radically towards the work of the gospel because their great hope and joy lies in heaven. There are those who lay aside Sunday sport for their children because well, they want to teach them that church is more important and serving Jesus is more important in their lives. You see, running this race while looking to Jesus requires sacrifice requires giving up those things that are a distraction because our greatest joy is in heaven and you know that it will be worth it. I wonder what things you and I need to lay aside in order to run this race well in our lives. Um, I wonder whether um, we might be able to just spend five minutes or so um, having a chat with the person sitting next to us and have a think about that question. What are those weights, uh, what are those sins that we might need to lay aside in our lives so that we can run this race well without distraction? What is it for you? Um, there are things in my life that I need to get rid of, but are there things in your life as well? Uh, why don't you have a chat with your neighbour uh, for a few minutes and then I'll, I'll call us back together. Uh, okay, friends, um, I know that's not enough time, but uh, uh, we might come back together. And uh, it'll be useful, I think, uh, for us to keep on having that conversation today. And uh, perhaps over morning tea, uh, we can keep on uh, talking about these things and challenging each other uh, to lay aside certain things so that uh, we can run this race well.
but I hope you can see that it's very important uh, who we look at uh, in the Christian life. Uh, there are many things or people that we can look at as we run the Christian life, isn't there? Uh, if you look at others in the church, and that's where your gaze is, um, you will be disappointed at some stage and give up. If you look at yourself too much, you will either be puffed up with pride or fall into despair sooner or later. But the way to endure in the Christian life is to keep looking to Jesus and to see that pattern, that first there is the cross because later there is the crown, that before the glory there is suffering. Um, and so who are you looking at as you run that Christian race? Are you looking at Jesus? Do you have your eyes fixed on him? Uh, now, the second thing that the writer of Hebrews says about how to run this race with endurance is to receive discipline from God. To receive discipline from God. Uh, it's quite clear from this passage that if you are a Christian person and you go through periods of opposition or suffering or difficult circumstances in your life, it is because God is disciplining you as one of his children. Now, you can see it there in verse 5 where the writer quotes from Proverbs 3. Verse 5, My son, do not light, uh, regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary, uh, weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And again in verse 7, he says, God is treating you as sons. Uh, when this passage talks about sons, it, it's talking about heirs, people set to in, inherit the kingdom of God. And so if you are a Christian woman, then in a strange sort of way, the Bible would say that you are sons as well, because you are co-heirs, uh, looking forward to that heavenly inheritance. But the thing I want you to see here is that such discipline from God is not actually evidence um, of his absence or his anger in your life, but evidence of his love. You see, you see this in earthly relationships as well, don't you? It's the child who is spoilt and gets to do whatever he wants and grows up as a bit of a brat who is not really loved by his parents. But the child who is disciplined and nurtured by his parents is the one who is truly loved. Uh, in verse 8, it says, If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Uh, but here's the thing. Discipline has the purpose of growing children to maturity, doesn't it? And so with earthly parents, we discipline our children because you know, we don't want them to stay childish. We want them to grow up to maturity. Of course, if you are a parent like I am, you know as well as I do how difficult that can be for us. Sometimes in our sinfulness, we discipline our children not out of love, but perhaps out of anger or frustration or selfishness. But not so with God. For God's purpose in disciplining us is to grow us more like him. He wants us to become more holy in our character like he is. 
And so you can see it there from verse 10. Verse 10. For they, that is, earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Uh, when I was in high school, I did a bit of pottery. Um, has anyone done pottery during high school? And it produced those embarrassing, you know, things that you produce? Um, but unlike you, and unlike a lot of my friends, I've got to say, what I produced was a piece of art. Um, and the thing that made my pottery look good was the number of times it had been put through the kiln. Uh, you see, with pottery, uh, you make whatever you're creating out of clay, and then you bake it uh, through the kiln, don't you? And then you glaze it. You put this uh, glaze on it, and then you put it through that fire again until it comes out shiny. And then you do it again. You put more glaze on it, and you put it through that fire again. And the more times you put it through the fire, the better it comes out at the end in all its glory. Uh, you see, that's a little bit like what the he writer of Hebrews is saying here, isn't it? In God's wisdom, he will put you through the fire. He will put you through persecution, through suffering and difficult circumstances. But his purpose is not to walk away from you, but his purpose is to refine you and mature you and grow you more like him and be ready so that you and I might be ready for the glory of heaven itself. Now, friends, how do you respond to God when persecution or suffering or difficulties in your life comes your way? Now, some of you might be experiencing very difficult circumstances in your life even now. Now, perhaps you identify with the pain of verse 11. But how are you responding to that as God sends those events into your life? Do you respond with self-pity? Uh, do you respond perhaps by excusing yourself from obeying God? I find this a great temptation when uh, I go through difficult periods, somehow thinking that, God's word doesn't apply to me anymore because I'm suffering? Or do you, see, do you and I see our difficulties as God's loving hand on us? And we start to ask ourselves, well, what does God want to teach me from this? Now, how does God want to grow me in my character so that I become more like him? For you see, the way to run the Christian life well is to receive discipline from God and be willing to be trained by him so that we grow in holiness. Now, what does it look like to grow in holiness? Well, positively, you can see there that it means living in peace with those around us and growing in holiness of character. Now, you can see it there in verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But you can see there that the writer of Hebrews also gives us two negative examples, which are the opposite of peace and holiness of character. 
Uh, the first negative example is there in verse 15, where he refers to the root of bitterness. You see it there? Now, that's not talking about being grumpy, uh, but it actually comes from Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 18. And so if you have your Bibles there, we might uh, quickly uh, flip back to Deuteronomy chapter 29, uh, verse 18. Uh, so turn with me there. Uh, Deuteronomy. Uh, chapter 29, verse 18. And uh, you can see there that God says, halfway through the verse, uh, these words. He says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. You see, the bitter root there are those who hear God's word and deceive themselves into thinking that they are safe before God, even though there is no intention of the heart to live his way, to repent and to change, and to put God's word into practice. They have a fascination with God's word, but are not doers. And God says to beware such, uh, such people, because they will not only put themselves in a great amount of danger, but they will also affect others with their poison. But friends, when was the last time that you and I actually repented or changed something about our lives as a result of hearing God's word? Um, when was the last time we made a decision um, that we knew we needed to make uh, after having God read God's word together with other Christian people? If we can't think of anything then God would say to you this morning, beware. And he would say to us as a church to beware of such people who hear God's word but have decided in their hearts stubbornly not to listen to him. But the second negative example that you see there is that of Esau, who is described in verse 16 as unholy. Uh, what made Esau unholy? Well, if you remember, Esau was the one who had such little regard for the promises of God and the blessings of God and his future inheritance of the kingdom that he was willing to exchange it all for a worthless bowl of soup. In other words, he was a man who was willing to exchange the glory of eternity in heaven for a moment of pleasure and satisfaction. And this, friends, is the nature of sin, isn't it? When we sin, it's because we believe that it will bring us pleasure and satisfaction now rather than trusting God and living for the joy of our future inheritance. The tragedy, of course, is that for those who continue on this course, Esau serves as a great warning that you can go past the point of no return. And the writer of Hebrews says, beware, 
make sure that it doesn't happen to you. And uh, these verses in Hebrews are a collective warning. Make sure that uh, you help each other for this not to happen to us as a church. But how is such a life possible? How is it possible to receive God's discipline and grow in holiness? Well, what the writer of Hebrews says next is that it is possible not by the law, but by the gospel. Not by the law, but by the gospel. And you can see this by the way he contrasts two different mountains here. Uh, Firstly, notice that he speaks about Mount Sinai, which was where the law was given through Moses. Uh, This mountain symbolizes the old covenant Judaism that the Hebrew Christians were tempted to go back to, if you remember from uh, past sermons. But notice that when God spoke to the people of Israel at this mountain, which we uh, read about in Exodus 19, it was a moment of sheer terror. Uh, In verse 18, you can see there that at Mount Sinai, there was a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches this mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. You see, the law gave no hope of being holy before God, but rather produced terror. It said you cannot approach the holy God. However, did you notice that the writer says to the Hebrew Christians, that you have come not to Mount Sinai, but if you have your faith and your trust in Jesus, then you have come to Mount Zion, which is the city of the living God, the holy, the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice the tense. It's not that you know one day they will come to heaven, but they have in a sense come already to heaven. You have already come, he says. And what a contrast Mount Zion is to Mount Sinai. Here there is no terror, but pure joy, did you notice? In verse 22, you have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Here there is fellowship with others who have also put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 23, you have come to the assembly, literally the church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Here there is the presence of God himself. In verse 23, you have come to God and have drawn near to him. Here you are surrounded by people who have run the race before you. In verse 23, you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, who I think are the people of faith uh, in chapter 11 that we saw earlier. And finally, here you have come to Jesus, who in verse 24 is described as the mediator of a new covenant. And you have come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. For unlike the blood of Abel, which screamed out for vengeance after he was murdered by his brother Cain in the Old Testament, if you remember, for the blood of Jesus no longer cries out for vengeance, but the blood of Jesus 
speaks a word of forgiveness and mercy and a drawing near to God. You see, it is only through this gospel word of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that you and I can draw near to God and come into his kingdom. And it is only through this gospel word of the sprinkled blood of Jesus that we will be kept in God's kingdom so that we will run the Christian race with endurance and perseverance in our lives. But if you and I are people, friends, who have the privilege of already having come to God's kingdom, then notice that we are also people who have an even greater responsibility to be listening well to his word and not to refuse him who is speaking. And so you can see there in verse 25 that there is a solemn warning not to refuse the one who speaks the gospel word to you. There is a solemn warning here not to reject him and the demands of the gospel in your life. For one day, a day that is coming, God is going to shake up this world in judgment like an earthquake. In verse 26 it says, At that time, that is at Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Uh, A few weeks ago we had one of our previous student ministers, uh, Luke Sinclair, visit us at church with his family. Uh, If you haven't met Luke before, uh, he grew up in Christ Church in New Zealand. And uh, one of the very first things he told me when he came to our church is that when the 2011 earthquakes hit, uh, he was in the toilet. But he was in the toilet in the engineering building of the university that he went to, which was one of the very few earthquake-proof buildings uh, in Christchurch. And so, uh, in a strange sort of way, he was in one of the safest places you could be in Christchurch at the time. Uh, Now, uh, that's a funny story, given where he was, until you realise that many people died who were actually not in such shelter, not inside buildings that were unshakable. And you see, in a small way, uh, that is what it's going to be like on the last day. God will send the earthquake of his judgment into this world, and that day will be a glorious day for those who belong to the unshakable kingdom of God, for they will remain forever but it will also be a day of great calamity for those who have refused and continue to refuse the word of the gospel. For they will be shaken and destroyed and removed from God's presence forever. And so, friends, if we are people who do belong to God's kingdom, then how are we to live? Well, in verse 28, it says, We are to live with gratefulness for receiving God's unshakable kingdom. And we are to live with acceptable worship, which, as we'll discover next week, is more than simply what we offer to God on a Sunday. 
and we are to offer him that worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. Uh, we are not consumed because of the blood of Jesus. But our God is still a consuming fire who is not to be trifled with in our lives. And so, friends, this is how we run the Christian race with endurance and perseverance. We look to Jesus. We keep on looking to him and seeing the pattern of the cross and then the crown. We receive God's discipline and strive for holiness. And we live with grateful hearts that have been changed by the gospel of grace as we worship him in reverence and awe. And so let's pray now uh, that God will help us to do that as we continue to run this race together. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Uh, we thank you especially for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that his blood speaks to us of forgiveness and mercy and indeed speaks a better word than the blood of Abel in inviting us to draw near to you. Uh, help us, Father, we pray, not to simply be hearers of this word but not doers as well. We pray that each time we hear your word at church, in our growth groups, in our own study, that you would help us not to refuse the things you say, but to respond to you in faith and repentance. And Father, we pray especially when we face opposition for our faith or difficult circumstances in our lives, or when we feel the strain of living the Christian life that you would please help us to keep looking to Jesus, to keep considering him. And strengthened by the gospel, we ask that you would help us to run this race with great endurance, knowing and looking forward to the joy of our heavenly inheritance. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.